Hey, this is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and uh, we are in the middle of a study through the book of Revelation. Uh, If you've been with us already before, you'll know that this is a survey. This is not an in-depth verse by verse, but a 12-week survey. And our heart in this is that you have a better understanding of the major themes and theology Uh, and practical places of application for the book of Revelation. As a reminder to you, this is a pastoral letter. It is prophetic, it's apocalyptic, but it is a pastoral letter that was written to real people in the first century who were under the boot of Rome, who were Christians in the midst of persecution and trouble and tribulation and hardship. And uh, it has application for us today in the same way it did for those first century followers of Jesus. Before we dive right into this week's message, I just wanna ask you, Uh, for your grace and uh, your understanding. And the reason I'm asking you for that is um, this message was supposed to be preached by one of our other pastors, Pastor Spencer, uh, who informed me on Sunday morning while we were in rehearsal uh, with our worship team for the service that he had been up uh, sick all night and was not going to be able to preach and so this is me um, asking for your grace i had no prep time no notes nothing Um, so uh, i may not have said things as uh, eloquently or clearly as i would have liked to have so what i want to encourage you with is to listen through this but make sure you connect in with us next week uh, because this message and the one that's coming up next week will kind of work together. So hopefully I can clean up any big messes that I made. I dropped a few bombs in this one and um, didn't really do a good job of cleaning them up or anything like that. So be prepared for that. But uh, yeah, I hope that you're blessed uh, by this this week. We love you, Uh, we're for you, and we hope that you are experiencing the deep work Uh, of the Holy Spirit as you are engaging in this series with us. All right, so if you're uh, just stepping in with us right now, as you have heard already, we're in chapter six of this study through Revelation. This is uh, unfortunately not an exhaustive study. This is uh, a survey, about two chapters a week we'll be covering. So there's a lot in here. And this is where things start to get weird (laughs) in this book. And this is about the time uh, when there's a great temptation to just step away from this book and go to something more happy, more exciting. Um, I just also want to recognize too, as I mentioned at the outside of this series and and several times since, uh, we're approaching this uh, with humility. There is a a wide range of interpretation of Revelation's meaning out there. And there are many godly men and women uh, who have sincere, um, sincere faith that approach this very differently. And so as I said just at the outset, um, the stuff that we're gonna be covering here is these aren't things to divide over. They're not things to uh, provoke and antagonize. I, I have mentioned to you that I unintentionally, but um, you know, regrettably will offend most of you by the end of this. As we work through these few chapters, um, I wanna gently walk us into some territory that can maybe have the effect of ruffling feathers, <laughs> of um, just gently contrasting what most of us have grown up believing 
uh, these few chapters, and we'll, we'll get into it over the next few weeks. I'm not going to cover it all this week. These few chapters bring up the question of pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, or as my dad used to say, the pan theory, it'll all just pan out in the end, right? Um, so there's some potentially sacred cows here. I don't say that disrespectfully, just some sacred things that we've grown up with that I think the text, we need to allow it to confront in us. And um, so having said that, just a, a recap, because here's where timelines start going all crazy and where things start happening at lightning speed. And it's hard to uh, stay kind of grounded on exactly what's taking place here. And so remember last week I mentioned to you that word revelation, the Greek word apocalypso, it just means unveiling or uncovering. So what Jesus is doing is he is unveiling the reality behind reality. He's uncovering what's happening in the spiritual realm and spiritual places and how it affects and impacts the earth. So remember, um, we've said this a few times and I'm gonna keep reminding you two primary functions of apocalyptic literature are number one, to present our present moment here on earth in light of the unseen reality of the present. So what is happening in heavenly places right now contrasted with what we're seeing on the earth today? That's part of what Revelation does. It pulls back the veil and the curtain. As we've said before, Jesus is saying to John, John, things aren't always what they seem. And we've seen already Jesus pulling back this curtain in chapters one and two and three, and revealing the unseen reality of his presence in the midst of the churches in Asia Minor who are undergoing persecution and suffering. We saw that in the first few chapters. Jesus is pulling it back and he's saying, John, I know you're stranded uh, uh, as a political dissident on the island of Patmos and your heart as a pastor is being grieved. You're worried about your friends on the mainland. You're worried about the churches that you've been investing in, the families and the people that are undergoing suffering and persecution. But John, I'm gonna pull back the curtain and I'm going to reveal the reality that I'm standing in the middle of all of it. That's the first sort of apocalypse that Jesus gets gives to John. It's the first window the first movie scene that we're shown is Jesus standing in the midst of the churches. The second window we're shown was from last week. Window number two, which we're currently in, is the throne room. Chapters four and five are the theological center of Revelation. Everything that we are about to read today needs to be weighed against the, the revelation that there is one who sits on the throne, who has authority and power. The throne is not vacant. It's not up for grabs. It's not a who's who of like who's ruling on the earth today and that person is taking their seat. The throne is occupied. And the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, is in the center of the throne. That is the primary theological reality of Revelation. That in spite of what we're about to read, in spite of what we've already heard through chapter six and seven, the throne is occupied and it is not in danger. Jesus and the Father are sovereign. Regardless of what we see happening in the kingdoms of the earth, the throne is not up for grabs. That was the second window. Today we're still in this window and as we walk through these four horsemen of the apocalypse and all of these weird images, we have to continue to relate them against the reality that the lamb is on the throne. He's in the center of it. Make sense? One other note before we step into some of these verses. I mentioned to you last time, Revelation is not written chronologically. 
So what we're about to read, when we read about the seals and then we read about the trumpets and then we read about the bowls and all of these things happening, this is not chronological. John is not laying this out chronologically. He's simply relaying what he's seeing as he sees it. So we have to get this really straight for us because this can bring things into a big confusing mess. I wanna just put this out there for you. I'll probably remind you next week. As we talk about the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls that are coming, they are not talking about a succession of 21 events. They're all talking about the same things. The best way for us to position ourselves in these chapters of Revelation is to see them like the Gospels, the Gospels are four perspectives of the same events. They're four interpretations of the same things. As we see the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, they are different interpretations and descriptions of the same thing. That's very key as we get through here. As we walk through this, I want you just to have that in the back of your mind. It actually helps to simplify one other note, um, I didn't have any time to make a graphic for this, but maybe next week we will. Um, as we talk about these groups of seven, you could even jot this down in your, in your uh, scripture journal. They are uh, split. So in each of those seals, trumpets, bowls, the first four are given in a grouping of radical, uh, not radical, fast succession together. So the first four are treated as a group. And all of them then, uh, five and six, become uh, a, a, a further sort of letting us into what's happening in heavenly places. And the seventh of all of them is talking about the same thing. So there's a grouping there, the first four, then the next two widen our perspective and the seventh hones in in each one of them on the same thing. Let's just kind of jump through a few things here. So remember, this is the lamb who's opening these. Remember, we talked about this scroll that he has and on this scroll is writing inside and out. So these seals that he's opening are not to disclose something secret that hasn't been known before. There's writing on both sides. The purpose of the seal is not to reveal something hidden. The purpose of the seal is to establish who has authority. That's very key in this. Who has authority to open the seals? And there's only one, it's the lamb. We mentioned that this scroll, of course, everybody's guessing at a certain level with much of Revelation, but many scholars believe this scroll is a symbol of, of, of all of human history, everything and the purposes and plans of God. The, Jesus Christ is the only one who can step into the plans of God and bring the heart of God for humanity and creation to its fulfillment. He's the only one who has authority to walk out the very purposes of God. Nobody else does. And so Jesus is given this scroll and he begins to take these seals off. I wanna just make a note here with this word come that we see over and over. Again, we're stepping into an area where there's a wide variety a scholarly variety on what exactly that means. I wanna just uh, put something out there for you. I don't think that word come is intended for John because he's already there. He's already through that open door that we saw in chapters four and five. He's already there. He doesn't need to come anywhere. We saw in chapters four and five, these living creatures that are before the throne. And we talked about the reality that they're probably an expression of all of creation. 
the most majestic and mighty of all of God's creation before his throne. So these living creatures are uh, representative of all of God's creation. In Romans chapter one, Paul says that God's creation, the whole cosmos, everything that we see on this earth and everything beyond you know, our ability to see the whole cosmos is groaning right now under the effects and the weight of sin, all of it. And so if these living creatures are saying, come, why would they ask these four riders of the apocalypse to come and bring further destruction to the earth? They're groaning to come out from under the judgment of sin. I think what this declaration, this statement, come, is being directed to is Jesus. I think what these living creatures are saying, representative of all of God's creation, would you come, Jesus? Would you come and fulfill your purposes, the plans of God on this earth? We're groaning under the weight of sin and destruction. We're groaning under the weight of all of this. Would your kingdom come? I think that these living creatures are echoing the words of Jesus as he taught his disciples to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. I think that they are crying out to the lamb to say, come, Jesus. Would you make right what is so twisted and wrong on the earth? And we see these four horsemen of the apocalypse coming. I just have a few thoughts on each one of them. The first was riding a white horse. I, we won't get into it. You can head over to Zechariah. Zechariah prophetically talks about four horsemen as well. They're pulling chariots, but, but Jesus, I think, is reminding John of what Zechariah wrote hundreds of years before. That first horse is on a white, uh, that first rider is on a white horse with a bow and a crown. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, at first glance, this seems like it's Jesus because later on in Revelation, we see Jesus depicted as riding in on a white horse. But I want to just make a note for you of something. Those words to conquer and conquering are never specifically used of Jesus. They're always used of demonic power. What I believe the rider on the white horse is not Jesus. It's actually Satan masquerading as an angel of light, giving the appearance of Jesus, but coming with destruction in tow, coming to conquer and overthrow and demolish the work of Jesus, but coming as an angel of light, veiling it, spreading all over the earth a false gospel a false theology, a false doctrine. And that rider on the white horse is doing it in the church too. He's distorting and perverting the gospel. He's distorting and perverting the nature of Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It all looks good on the surface. And it's fooling many people, but it's not the Jesus and the real gospel. He's deceiving and deceptive. That's the rider on the white horse. Is coming with all of the external marks of Jesus, but a gospel of self-fulfillment. A gospel of like, you, you, you are the captain of your own ship. The, you determine your own reality. A gospel that teaches us to find meaning within ourself and purpose within ourself, not in Jesus. And that rider on the white horse is riding today. Looks good on the surface. And we're seeing this inside the body of Christ too. We're being challenged more and more aggressively to lay down historical biblical orthodoxy, 
things that, that have been held for thousands of years by thousands and millions of Christians were being told those don't matter anymore. We can interpret scripture the way we want. We can interpret scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean. But it's still scripture. We're just turning it into our own version of scripture. The rider on the white horse is riding and he looks good. He has the resemblance of Jesus, but with him in tow comes destruction. This next horse is the red horse. And he's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. We begin to see now Jesus revealing to John, John in chapters four and five, John, I'm on the throne but now I'm going to begin to unveil, to pull back the curtain so that you can see when my kingdom comes on the earth, these are the things that oppose my kingdom. Deception opposes my kingdom. Violence and war and bloodshed oppose my kingdom. And we see this rider on the red horse who's given authority. I want you to notice too, and I don't even know how to answer this, fully, <laughs> honestly. I want you to notice that these four horsemen of the apocalypse are given authority. They don't have it on their own. The only one who can give it is Jesus. And in some mystery that's way beyond my pay grade, God is saying, I, I'm actually allowing these things to take place on the earth. And we're gonna see why later. We're gonna see why would God allow these things to happen. It's actually to provoke and draw humanity back to himself, to provoke repentance on the earth. You're gonna see that word over and over and over. Who remembers a couple of weeks ago when Anders came in and shouted in the service? Right? Does anybody remember that? Who, who was freaked out? Like, really freaked out? I, I didn't real. somebody was looking over at Stu here and uh, was, because Stu is a police officer and was wondering, okay, Stu, are we going now? Like, are we going to take this guy down? What are we going to do? I literally picked the only guy I know that has a louder voice than I do. That's a compliment, Anders. So, and he was gracious enough to do that. But we're going to see... Uh, again, that, that the purpose of these things in somehow in God's bigger view of things is to provoke repentance, which is a turning around, which is a turning from these things. This rider on the red horse brings war. And we see that playing out over and over on the pages of history. I wanna just make a note here too, that these first six seals, but these groupings of four here, these are taking place today. So there's a word we need to clarify and we'll, we'll unpack this more as we go through. But that word for tribulation, the word great tribulation there is a Greek word, thlipsis. That word is used all through the New Testament and Old Testament to talk about the present tribulation that the church is experiencing on the earth. So my perspective on these is that these horsemen are not a future reality, they are a present reality. We are living... Uh, eschatologically, we're living right now in the age after the ascension. So after Acts 2, we're living in this period in history when God says, and Jesus even says it, in this world you will have many trials, thlipsis. You'll have much opposition. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience hardship. You're going to experience all kinds of that stuff, but take heart because I've overcome the world. We're living in that period of history. 
So these horsemen don't represent something coming in the future. They represent the realities of the kingdom of Satan at work on the earth today and the ways that he's operating. Again, remember, Revelation is a pastoral letter. It's the longest letter in scripture written to Christians in modern day Turkey to encourage them in their faith to be strong to encourage them as they're being persecuted and put under the sword and fed to lions under Domitian's rule. This is meant to unveil for them the plans and the schemes and the tactics of the enemy of God so that there's a a greater clarity with how they live, how they recognize the assignments of the enemy and how they distinguish the way of the lamb in contrast to that. He keeps going on. I opened the third seal. I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Okay, that's super confusing. I wanna just give you uh, an interpretive option for that. There's a couple, but the one that I think makes a lot of sense. What uh, this horse and rider are representing is the reality that with the rule of the kingdom of darkness, with Satan's rule on the earth as he's opposing the work of Jesus on the earth, it's actually going to come with economic devastation. So we don't use denariuses, um, but that's a lot of money for a little bit of food. It's actually talking about like a hyperinflation. That word will make sense to lots of us right now. That's why you go to Costco gas, everyone. <laughs> um, so what this is unveiling is that actually there's an economic consequence that is a part of what's going on on the earth today. And one of the contrasts that's going on here is you won't even be able to afford the necessities of life, but the luxuries will be present for you. And it's kind of like in our culture now, we're obsessed with luxury. We're obsessed with, uh, with opulence and grandeur. And part of what's happening here is this, like you won't even be able to put rice on your plate but you, you, in front of you, you can indulge in all of the best and finest things the earth has to offer. Those will always be present. But there will be starvation and famine. You won't be able to afford to make ends meet in a regular way. And we see, let alone here in the West, we see all across the earth, people dying of starvation and famine. Like this is happening all the time. He goes on with the next horseman. I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider, his name was Death and Hades followed him. I want you to notice here again, they were given authority. Who holds the keys of death in the grave? We've already heard it in chapter one. Jesus does. For a period of time in this time in history, he's given authority over in some way, some fashion to this rider. But notice that Jesus is not saying that that horse and that rider are given authority over all the earth. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth. That number four, uh, remember, Uh, we're interpreting Revelation and the numbers in it as mostly, largely symbolic. That number four for John's readers and for John came with symbolism. It was a number that kind of reflected the cosmos. And so what is going on here is Jesus and the Father are limiting the authority of the enemy on the earth. They're limiting their capacity and their ability. You know, it's, this is hard for us to hear and to listen to. I heard one preacher not long ago talking about this. 
because we get, we get really offended at this. Like, how could you allow suffering and death and violence and hardship, God? Like, isn't that like contrary to your nature? And of course, we don't know the bigger answers to these big questions, but one thing I wanna point out here is even in our own life, as, as horrific and painful and real the experiences maybe you've walked through, maybe you've suffered horrible abuse or just incredible trauma and pain, those are very real things. And, and I would never wanna undermine those or, or diminish those. But I think part of what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you have no idea what I'm withholding, what I'm holding back in your life. Even in the midst of the greatest pain and suffering, even in the midst of everything going on in the earth today, we have no concept of the things that God is restraining, the evil he is restraining, the pain he's restraining, the hurt he's restraining. If he pulled all of the levers off and gave uh, Satan free reign, your life and my life would be 24 seven torment, like torment. And here God is saying, yeah, there's pain and suffering and death and these things are present in our reality on the earth, but I am still sovereign and I am still good and I am actually restraining the enemy in your life in so many ways that you can't even see. Of course, our human nature is to view everything through the lens of our pain and our suffering, and that's just normal reality. But I wanna, I wanna encourage you, even in this, to allow the experiences of your life, the trauma and the pain to be filtered through scripture, not your own interpretation of the events in question. To be filtered through scripture to see, God, I don't, I don't understand it and what I've walked through is horrific and unfair and, and painful, but I recognize I will still declare you're good and you're faithful and you're withholding so much pain from my life. By your goodness, you are restraining the enemy's ability to torment me in greater ways. He goes on and he opens the fifth seal under the altar, these are the souls of those who were slain. Man, we could talk for so long about this. Why are they under the altar? Again, we're talking about um, John who is coming from, and Jesus coming from the Jewish religious system. In the altar in the temple, when an animal was slain as a sacrifice to God, its blood would drip down under the altar. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is these people have made their lives a living sacrifice to me. They've actually given up the rights they have to their own life. They've actually surrendered their rights to me. They've surrendered their right to just live their own way and they've, they've followed me even to death. We're gonna move on. When he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. You see how we're, we're actually moving along. Uh, Revelation uses this imagery of labor and our contractions are getting closer and more intense here. It says the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from this place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. We're gonna talk about this more, lots more. In scripture, so there's a certain teaching. It's 11.27, do we have time to get into this? Hmm. Sure, I'll just provoke you and then you can go and stew on this all week. <laughs> Don't email me though, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I wanna just uh, provoke some thinking here. Again, gently, I'm not looking to intentionally upset anyone. There is a certain teaching 
uh, that says that the church would have had to have been raptured off the earth at this point because the church cannot come under the wrath of God. I want to just confront that and gently oppose that. Uh, All through scripture, we see God protecting the church, sheltering the church in the midst of his wrath on the earth. God does not have to secretly rapture the church off the earth to then pour out his judgment and wrath on the earth. He doesn't need to do that. He never has needed to do that. We see this in the story of the Exodus where these same words of God's wrath being poured out are used and he, what does he do? He creates a a mechanism where they sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and they're protected in the midst of God's judgment on the earth. We see this over and over in scripture, Noah and the ark, they're not taken off the earth, they're protected while God works out his justice and judgment on the earth. I believe that actually it's most scriptural, see this very carefully, it's most scriptural to assume, because this has been happening for almost every culture for thousands of years, that we as a church will experience the trials and not the judgments, the trials and pain and the realities of life on the earth as expressed here by these first horsemen of the apocalypse. We're gonna get into this. I don't believe scripture teaches the rapture of the church in a secret event in Revelation. A part of this, and some of you, you're, you're like, you're really angry at me right now. You're sweating and your heart is pounding. I have not, I've, I've not given myself over to the enemy of God here. Um, part of this is actually meant in John's writing and in Jesus's revelation here to sustain a church that's being persecuted. And we've experienced unusual peace historically from world history in the West. We've experienced unusual peace. But even today, in many parts of the earth, there are fellow brothers and sisters of Jesus who are dying. 50 Nigerians two weeks ago in church, killed. We can't create this false dichotomy where God takes the Western church out of suffering and out of pain while the whole rest of the body of Christ burns on the earth. It's not doing us any favors to believe that we'll be exempt from this. The purpose of Revelation is to teach the body how to walk with Jesus through suffering, not avoid it. And my fear, like these are things I'm wrestling with everyone. Like I don't, I don't have some sick, twisted idea of what's fun and like bring on the persecution and the pain, everyone. No. I love, I love the Canada that I grew up in. I love peace. I, I enjoy the freedom that we've had, but we have to recognize that that freedom that we have is not experienced by most of the church even right now. I'm not sure how emphatic that clapping was, but that's okay. We'll move on. <laughs> And we'll keep talking about this. This is a big subject to unpack. But I just want to leave it at this for today. To make an assumption that the body of Christ cannot be on the earth while this is happening, there's nowhere in Scripture that that's indicated. Nowhere. That's a false dichotomy And it's actually doing more harm than good because we've had, like, this is what I grew up with. This is what probably 90% of us grew up with. Rapture theology started in 1830. For 2,000 years almost before that, it was never mentioned, not even once. None of the early church fathers, none of the disciples mentioned it. Scripture doesn't mention it. It was first mentioned in 1830. But 
became very popular. And largely, if you go today to a Christian bookstore and you look at books on end time prophecy, that will be the dominant theme in most of the books. And I don't think it's biblical. Again, I'm saying that gently because I know that that's something we, most of us have grown up just believing. Listen, I, I, I cut my teeth on the whole series of movies like Thief in the Night. Who remembers that? Oh, I, I still have nightmares about that. That razor blade vibrating in that sink. The lawnmower running with nobody behind it. That scared the living daylights out of me. And then they followed it up with a distant thunder and all of these ones, people getting their heads chopped off and all kinds of stuff. You better believe I was on my knees asking my mom to pray with me to avoid that stuff. Like that's what I grew up in. Some of you grew up in the Left Behind series. Left Behind is great fiction, bad theology. It's horrific theology. I, Kirk Cameron is a nice enough guy. You know, I love the growing pains growing up. Not so much left behind. I think there needs to be room for us. Again, these aren't things to divide over, but there needs to be room for us to challenge these things. We go on. Couple points before I leave here, because we've got a lot that we could say, but we're not. Um, 144,000, again, so you have to make a decision when you're reading Revelation. Do I take all the numbers literally or are the numbers largely figurative? I think it's most consistent to view them all figuratively. If you take all of these numbers literally, you have to literally do jumping jacks and contort your body in weird ways to make everything line up. And it just doesn't work. Every time a new book is released, from Bible prophecy experts that's laying out all, like, do you remember like John Hagee preaching and he's got like, he's got timelines that stretch 40 feet across the stage and bless his heart, but you gotta, you gotta like make some interesting things happen to make all of that line up. And consistently through history, none of that stuff is actually panned out. And so the books just get revised and rewritten. Like, 89 ways the rapture is going to happen in 1989. That was an actual book. And then in 1990, it was revised, right? <laughs> like, and it still sold copies. I mean, come on. <laughs> so 144,000, I think the best, most consistent way to take this is figuratively. And this number figuratively means immense or without measure, like fully complete. Like there is uh, an innumerable amount of people. I also believe the 144,000 are the same as the great sea of people who are worshiping the lamb. But you, you gotta either go one way or the other with this. You can't kind of mix the two. It doesn't work out to sometimes interpret Revelation figuratively and sometimes interpret it literally. The whole thing just begins to fall apart if we get caught in that. So these 144,000 are sealed. That sealing, I believe, is what Paul talks about in Corinthians, in Ephesians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit when we give our lives to Jesus. I don't have a literal mark on my head but I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit because I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I'm following him. I'm sealed in Christ. It's what Paul talks about. Again, wow, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes here. My dad's shaking his head like, don't do it, Andrew. I don't know. I'll just throw it out there, just for lunch conversation for you, just lunch conversation. Can tell I wasn't the one supposed to be preaching today. Ha! Uh, just throw it out there. Um, I don't think, I think we need to be very careful to interpret this ceiling or conversely the mark of the beast in a literal physical sense. Again, we've done this through history. If you're older than I am, you remember when it happened with credit cards, right? Like it, that happened. Uh, we, revelation, again, Revelation was not written 
primarily to disclose a bunch of like future things that the original listeners to of this book would have had no idea about. The primary purpose of Revelation was written to strengthen a church in persecution and teach them how to recognize the way of the lamb against the four horsemen of the apocalypse, against the judgments that are happening on the earth. There is future stuff in Revelation, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But even the context and the content of these seals are present day. Again, that word for tribulation is not a unique and specific word. Revelation doesn't treat that word tribulation differently than the rest of Scripture does. It's an indication of suffering and trial and persecution and hardship. Not a specific seven-year period sometime in the future. Again, like I know I'm ruffling lots of feathers and we can talk more about this. I just want to present this to you in humility. I think that I'll end with this. I think one of the things I've noticed, and this is, this is a tendency of my own, and so I'm, I'm not leveling this as an accusation against anyone, but it's very easy for us, and especially as we've talked about when things are shifting on this earth so dramatically, and the things that we've been able to put trust in for generations we can't anymore, and, and there's this like global anxiousness because everything seems to be coming apart at the seams, and there's so many things going on. In the midst of that, our tendency, and mine too, maybe yours, is to go to that Bible prophecy aisle and try and figure out what is the secret kind of Da Vinci Code stuff going on here. And the, the, the problem with that the thing that can be a problem is you spend and I spend all of our time trying to research these hidden codes and agendas and we don't actually pick up the real book and immerse ourselves at the feet of Jesus. That's the, that's the danger here is we get obsessed with thinking that this is about some secret code for the future and we invest all of our energy in, in looking at the earth and, and, and interpreting revelation through the Twitter headlines or CNN's headlines or what's happening. And the church has done this all through history and it's never worked out. When they started doing this, you know, the, the, the warring armies coming from the east, well, those, that was the Turkish Ottoman Empire, but that didn't make a lot of sense because... Like, that's literally where the book was being written from, so they were coming from the east. But then when that got sorted out on the earth, then the, 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 the kings from the east became China and Russia and all of these things. And we keep changing interpretation based on headlines because we're looking for this secret code instead of just immersing ourselves in the life of Jesus and saying, Jesus, what do you want for me today? I can't change what's gonna happen today on a global scale, but how do I follow you and be faithful to you in my life right now? And I wanna just encourage you. I'm not trying to disparage those authors who have written those books. I'm trying to refocus your attention. If you're spending all of your internet leisure time searching out how this thing could be this and how this is like, you know, like attached to all these things, you're going down the wrong trail. Jesus, again, chapter four and five are the heartbeat of this book. Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm at the center of everything. Live in proximity to me. Live in unity with me. Live in relationship to me. Be close to me. And I will give you the strength you need to walk through these very difficult and confusing moments in history. Let's stand together. Let's pray, Jesus.
I just submit everything that's come out of my mouth to you. If I have spoken in error in any way, I ask Holy Spirit that you would confront that. I, I'm open to your conve- uh, correction and conviction. Father, what we need is a real apocalypse of the really real reality of Jesus in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart at breakneck speed. Jesus, your church needs to be strengthened and encouraged. Our marriages need you, Jesus. Our children in school, public school, Jesus, have mercy on them. Father, as parents, I don't don't even know where to turn or what to do except to you, Jesus. Our kids need you. Our kids need parents who are willing to follow the way of the lamb, not just look for a secret escape off the earth when things get hard. Father, I pray that you would strengthen every family unit here. Father, our government needs you. Our mayor needs you. Our counselors need you. Our provincial government needs you. Our federal government needs you. God, I just, I cry out to you for your mercy. Even on our prime minister, Father, I I cry out to you for your mercy that you would bring him to repentance that you would turn the hardness of his heart toward you. Father, we need your strengthening. We need a vision of you, Jesus. And so we ask for that. Where these realities, these four horsemen are riding in our life, I pray, Jesus, that you would just even through our teaching today, that you would make us aware of the schemes and the tactics and the strategies of the enemy of God who is wreaking havoc on the earth, but that you would remind us, Father, that even in the midst of just the most broken, 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 unfair, unfair garbage, you are still good and you've been holding back the full effects of sin in the kingdom of darkness. I pray that those who have been so deeply hurt and wounded and so unfairly victimized and experienced so much of that, Father, that you would show them your goodness even in the middle of it. We need you, Jesus, in these days. Amen. 